From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is The ER. This week, the hijab, Iran, and human rights. For many millions of Muslim women, wearing the hijab or headscarf is a sign of modesty and devotion to God. In Iran, wearing the hijab isn't simply a religious choice, nor is it a personal one. It's the law. The political initiative now lies totally with the Ayatollah. Now that he's back, he'll very soon announce the establishment of a government of his own. The existing government of Dr. Bakhtia will declare that illegal. After the fall of the Shah and the Islamic Revolution of 1979, Iran adopted a strict dress code for women. Women who flaunt it can be arrested. The women who fail to wear a headscarf in Iran can in fact be jailed for up to two months or fined as much as 500,000 riyals, which is roughly about $13. Some Iranian women have recently begun protesting the mandatory hijab. This video posted on social media shows a mother waving a white scarf on a busy street in Tehran and shouting to passers-by. We want freedom. We want freedom of dress. We just want our rights back. No to the compulsory hijab. For a first-hand account of the fight for women's right to choose in Iran, we got in touch with Iranian journalist Masya Alinejad. Alinejad has lived in Brooklyn since 2009. Her social media posts have prompted Iranian women, and even some men, to post protest photos and videos. Many do so while waving a hijab in the air or walking down the street uncovered. Alinejad now has a new book out called The Wind in My Hair, My Fight for Freedom in Modern Iran. She's also profiled in Foreign Policy's July issue by author and journalist Kim Gaddis. Hi, Mastier. It's Sarah. How are you? <laughs> Hi. I'm good. How are you, Sarah? I- I'm all right. Thank you so much. I- I'm so glad to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, Mastier, there's so much to ask you about, but maybe we'll start with what brought you to international attention, which was a Facebook post, right, of you with the wind in your hair? And the wind in my hair, yeah. It started from a photo of me running in a beautiful um, street full of blossoms. Maybe it's so simple for other people. It's like ordinary photo. But for us growing up in, in a country where we never had a chance to be our true self or uh, to choose what we want to wear, it had a message. So that's why when I published that photo, actually, I wrote the caption, Anytime when I run in a free country, I feel the wind in my hair. It just reminds me of the time when my hair was like a hostage in the hands of Iranian government. And um, I got a lot of comments from Iranian women expressing their uh, feeling. So that time I just decided to give them a platform to talk about their personal freedom, freedom of choice. And is that when you launched this movement that you call My Stealthy Freedom? Yeah, that's how my Stealthy Freedom campaign was born. But I have to say that, you know, stealthy means like something in secret, which is not a stealthy anymore. But that time I asked people to share their moment of freedom, which they created in stealth when they don't see the morality police around. But right now, the campaign, I mean, it's unbelievable. People just confronting the police and and women filming themselves while the morality police telling them, cover yourself, they saying, no, we don't, it's none of your business. Or women putting the headscarf on a stick and going on a platform and waving the headscarf uh, in the street to protest compulsory hijab. Mathieu, let's go back actually to your childhood. You were born two years before the revolution or or two years after? (laughs) Two years before the revolution. But your entire memory is of a time with the compulsory hijab in place. 
Look, because um, I strongly believe that people had a dream when they had a revolution and their dream was like having better opportunity, greater freedom. Um, but what happened, that revolution became a revolution against women. And we actually lost all the social freedom that we already had instead of gaining a better situation and greater freedom. Women were allowed to choose what they wanted to wear before the revolution. Women were allowed to sing solo. We had so many female singers. Women were allowed to enter stadiums to participate in any kind of sports that they wanted. But what happened after the revolution? We became like second-class citizen, never, you know, have the chance to be our true self from the age of seven. When you go to school and you don't wear the hijab, then you won't be able to get an education, to get a job and to live in your own country. Tell me a little bit about your childhood. Before the hijab, there were other things you felt rebellious about. Tell me about them. You know, when I was a kid, I never had a clue about feminist movement, equality or discriminations, nothing. I was just a kid, wanted to have the same freedom as my brother, who was only two years older than me, who was allowed to do whatever he wanted to do, jumping in a beautiful river in our village, running freely with boys outside our house, riding a bicycle. And that was the most important thing that I wanted to achieve. You don't need to be a feminist. You don't need to be a, a fighter to understand that how frustrated that you have to spend times inside the house behind the curtain and watching your brother enjoying himself just because he was a boy. I hated to spend time inside the house. That is why I started my revolution from my family's kitchen. Masya, tell me, when you were 19, you were actually arrested. What happened? I got involved in student activities because I wanted to make awareness and help other, you know, girls like me to be brave and understand the power of saying no can change their lives. And I got arrested and they were like threatening us that we're going to execute you. I didn't know that they're not going to do that, but that was scary in that time. So uh, we did the false confession to save our life to get out of the prison. How long were you in prison? I was pregnant, so I got free after a month. But my brother was in prison for two years and a half, and my ex-husband was there for six months. But I have to say that we were in prison just because spreading pamphlets around, you know, that was our crime. We didn't kill anyone. We didn't do anything like we were not criminals. What did the pamphlets say? The pamphlets were like, we were reading some uh, forbidden books and making synopsis. And, and it was against the government and criticizing the government. It was a peaceful, um, you know, pamphlet. Where were you living at the time? At that time, I lived in a small town called Babol, close to Caspian Sea, which is a conservative town. And did you have role models for doing this type of thing, for protesting, for questioning? We grew up in a really poor family. We didn't have even inside bathroom. We had to use outhouse, which was in our backyard garden. It was really dark during the night. It was like blacker than black. And I remember my mom was telling me that if you let your fear win, then the darkness can devour you. But staring to the darkness, then the darkness can disappear. So you see, that actually uh, was my lesson 
So I learned from my mother because I experienced a lot of darkness in my life. How far along was your pregnancy when you got out of prison? I was three months uh, and a half. And when I get out of prison, I was, it's so sad, but I was looking to do abortion because I was not ready to be a mother. My ex-husband was in prison and it was such a hard time, tough decision, which I couldn't do it. And I'm really happy that I couldn't because now I'm a proud mother of a 20-year-old son. Where did you go after you had him? Your husband's still in prison. Did, did you go back to your parents? Were you living alone? That was a dilemma because my parents wanted me to go back to them, to be with them. And that was a time actually I decided to be independent, which was not possible. So I was living with my uh, ex-mother-in-law. And then after when I got divorced, that was a tough decision because I was the first woman getting divorced in my village. And in this situation, you have to get back to your family. You cannot stay with your ex-mother-in-law or you cannot stay on your own. So I had to go back to my village, which I decided to say no. That time, my father stopped talking to me for one year. So here you are, a young mother, divorced, alone, but you don't go back to your village. Instead, you become a journalist. How did you do that? I went to a newspaper office. It was not easy to get a job. Because they asked me about, you know, so many questions that, where did you get your education? Do you speak English? Do you know how to work with computer? A lot of things. And I was like, no, I want to learn from you. Just give me a chair, a place to stay that I'll prove that I'm, I'm good at writing. <laughs> so, and um, it was not easy to get that job. So I started to be a trainer for a few months. But I stole the notebook of my editor and I did a phone interview with an MP, which that interview changed my life because the interview became the headline of the newspaper in the front page. And the day after, uh, my editor, who was a female editor, actually, you know, hired me. And she said, you prove that you can do it. Masi, what was the interview about? Iranian state TV is under the control of Supreme Leader of Iran. So the parliament wanted to do an investigation. So that is why I did an interview with uh, the member of parliament that, how are you going to do that? Do you need the permission from the Supreme Leader of Iran? Do you need the permission from, you know, the uh, Ayatollah Rafsanjani? And one of the MPs said that we don't need to get any permission. So that became the headline. And and then from there, you work for the newspaper and continue to push parliamentarians. Yeah, from that time, I became a parliamentary journalist. And um, I found that it's not easy at all to be a female journalist in parliament. I remember I was just asking political questions and I got a conservative MP coming towards me and saying, first you cover your hair then ask your question. So he actually showed me his fist and saying that if you don't cover yourself, I'm going to punch you on your face. Actually, that photo became really, you know, it went viral. And is that when the hijab for you started to become a focus of your own protests? Uh, Hijab was important for me from, you know, the time when I was envying at my brother, Ali, in the village. But I was always told that this is not the right time to talk about hijab. Because when you're poor, you have to think about food, you know, money. Then when you have revolution, you have to think about bigger problems. Then when you have war between Iran and Iraq, 
again, you have to think about bigger problems. When I became a parliamentary journalist, I just found that any time when I talk about so-called bigger problems, they just, you know, attack me about my hair and my headscarf and my hijab. So I found that this is important, you know, because this has actually became a tool for the government of Iran to control the whole society through hijab and became important for me from that time to ask this question. So I decided to go to former president of Iran, former spokesman of uh, you know Iran, and ask them all that why Iran is the only country forcing women to wear hijab. Even non-Iranian are forced to wear hijab in my country. I asked these questions, but I was not allowed to publish it in Iran. What were the answers? Yeah, the answer was so funny because I couldn't, it was a taboo to ask um, why hijab is compulsory. So I had to find my own way to ask the question. So I went to the former president of Iran and I said that, look, if you go to France with your wife and from, you know, the airport, they uh, force your wife to take off her hijab, what would be your reaction? So he answered that this is against Islam. They shouldn't do that. They have to respect my uh, my wife. And then I replied back, so what if you force all the female politicians from the airport in Iran to put the hijab on? Is that kind of respecting the other women? So the president of Iran started to laugh and because he got the point that what I asked the first question. This spokesman, the former spokesman actually said that, I'm not going to answer this question. And then I... Um, Repeat my question. So the former president of Iran said, look, this is a law in Iran, so they have to respect the law. Women who are older than you, who, who remembered the time before the revolution, who remembered a time of choice, did they discuss with you their own frustrations about the hijab? Was this a conversation happening behind closed doors among women? Always women are talking about compulsory hijab in their daily life. Because when you are a woman, First thing that you want to go out from your house that you have to think about it, it's your appearance, the way that you dress. And for us, every day when we use the mirror to go out, we use the mirror to make ourselves the one that the government wants. You know, it's so simple. You using the mirror to make yourself beautiful, to make yourself the way that you, you like it, but we use the mirror to make ourselves the one that the government of Iran like it. So it's our daily life. Let's go into your campaign for a moment. You posted a photo of yourself to Facebook with your hair in the wind. Did you expect it would have the impact that it did, that women would respond to it? Mm, to be honest, not at all. Because, you know, we've been brainwashed for so many years that hijab is not an important issue. Like many other now Western women think, the same way that hijab is not a big issue. I was the one actually focusing on human rights and so-called bigger problems. And I just published a, a picture of myself just sharing my uh, photo, the happy time to my audiences. I never thought that I'm going to be bombarded by so many photos of women saying that. When we talk about hijab, we talk about the most visible symbol of oppression. Your campaign actually morphed to a different hashtag. What happened then? I had to come with new initiative every time to make this campaign alive, to make the debate alive. I wanted to get men involved. 
and to make them understand that when we talk about hijab, we are not talking about those women who don't want to wear hijab. We have to make this an issue for all people. So that is why I created a hashtag called men in hijab as well, because I wanted men to understand that how it means to be forced to wear a job. So I, I invited them to wear a job and talk about their feeling and send their photos. So that hashtag went to viral because men joined their wives, mothers and sisters standing shoulder to shoulder to them and saying, this is an insult to us when uh, the government forced our wives and mothers to wear a job. So that is actually the way you make hijab or women's right an issue for the whole society. I invited those women who believe in hijab to join us as well. Like um, I received so many photos saying that we believe in hijab, but we hate compulsory hijab. I invited non-Iranians to join the campaign under another hashtag called see you in Iran without hijab because I strongly believe when the government of Iran force um, non-Iranians to wear hijab then this is a global issue this is not an internal matter and we have to all get together to fight against this discriminatory law Matthew, are you worried for the women though? You are posting from Brooklyn and, and they are inside Iran. Aren't they at risk? I am not the one asking them just go and put yourself in danger. They already have a voice, but they don't have a platform. So from Brooklyn, I'm just giving a platform to those women actually who are brave enough to challenge the government of Iran. Let me give you an example. One of the women from my campaign who got arrested, I was scared, feeling guilty, crying for her. But after she got arrested, she went in front of the court and she took off her headscarf. And she published her video saying that by arresting me, by threatening me, I'm not going to keep silent. So she published that video on her Instagram by writing this. I was interrogated for hours and hours. My interrogator was telling me that you have to admit you're working for Masih Arinejad. And she said, I looked back to my interrogator and I said, no, I'm not working for Masih. This is Masih is working for me as far as you're not giving me a platform inside Iran. So you see... This is the government of Iran should be questioned that why you put women in danger, not me giving them a platform to be loud and condemn discriminatory law. The other day in mid-July, an 18-year-old girl was arrested for dancing on Instagram. What happened there? So that actually shows you a better picture of how Iranian women trying to use social media to be their own alternative media, to be their own voices, to be their own storytellers. And this is the government of Iran actually try to, you know, oppress them, try to filter Instagram and uh, keep them silent. What do you see happening next? Where do you want this to go? Through social media, you can see that there is a daily war in Iran between Iranian government and the people of Iran. Recently, people took to the street and protest, chanting against the clerics, the government, the whole regime. And they were just asking for a better life, better food, equality. And uh, they are fed up with religion interference in their life. They want to have a secular democratic country. They want religion to be separated from the states, the politics. That's all we want in 21st century. I don't think that by arresting people, killing people, or forcing people to live in exile, the government can 
win this battle. They already lost. And I strongly believe Iranian people now can be uh, heard by the rest of the world and sending their own message. And um, they're going to bring the change within the society. But the international community should recognize their voices. Matia, you've said you think Western feminists have not been the support you'd hope and that you see it as a conflict for Western feminists in Western countries because of concerns about appearing Islamophobic. Do you think there's a misunderstanding of where this campaign is? Yeah, that's actually a good question because it gives me the opportunity to make it clear that um, fighting against a discriminatory law never makes you Islamophobic because we are not against Islam, but all the Islamic laws are against me and millions of Iranian women in Iran. These Western feminists who condemned Burkini ban in France, but they go to Iran and they respect compulsory hijab laws without challenging it. I think they actually hypocrites. You know, I really don't want to say this word, but they are. Because when discriminatory laws happen, we have to get all together. When we took to the street and support Women's March, then you have to be with us and support our march and our movement in the Middle East as well. Masia, are you afraid for yourself, for your personal safety? No, honestly, I have only one life. And um, I dedicated my life to these brave women who are actually facing the true uh, threat within the society in Islamic Republic of Iran. And um, when I received death threats or saying that we're going to kill you, we're going to cut your chest and your tongue to send it to your parents, I get a lot of hate messages, but I... uh, gain my power from the women who live inside Iran in getting bitten up by the Islamic Republic of Iran, but they're still loud and brave enough to challenge a discriminatory law. So I'm just giving them a platform. As far as they are fighting within the society, I'm not going to give up. Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you for having me. That's Masya Alinejad. She's written a new book about her experiences called The Wind in My Hair, My Fight for Freedom in Modern Iran. And if you're interested in learning more about the issue, be sure to pick up the July issue of Foreign Policy. In it, author and journalist Kim Gaddis gives a comprehensive look at Masya's story. I'm Sarah Wildman, and you've been listening to the ER from Foreign Policy. Our show is produced by Dan Efron and edited by Rob Sachs.